the places that struggle the most is how to do this at scale. Most of them have gotten to a place where they've had a chance to taste what technology can do in their company. They've had a pilot, they had a successful experimentation, but it's not moving the needle on the company performance. And really, this is what Rewired gets at, which is how do you move from these early pilots, experimentation, where you've had some successes to actually scale this. From McKinsey's strategy and corporate finance practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from Eric Lamar, a senior partner in our Boston office and co-author of our new book, Rewired, The McKinsey Guide to Outcompeting in the Age of Digital and AI. Eric and his co-authors, fellow senior partners Kate Smage and Rodney Zemmel, base their book on the results of more than 200 large-scale digital transformations, creating a detailed how-to manual for companies seeking to outcompete in the age of digital and AI. They've found that to increase the odds of long-term success in a digital transformation, the C-suite must make fundamental changes to their company's talent, operating model, technology, and data capabilities. I had the pleasure of meeting with Eric in London to explore those changes and discuss how executives can leverage them to ensure that their digital transformation is a long-term success. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. Sean, terrific to be here. Nice seeing you. We're looking forward to the conversation. Great. Let's start off with a general question. What's so different now about the rise of digital AI and technology that spurred you, Rodney, and Kate to write this detailed guide for executives? So I think what is new about technology is that we can actually shape it to serve customer better, lower unit costs, outcompete uh, in the marketplace. Uh, so companies can own technology in the way that wasn't possible certainly a decade ago. And so with the rise of digital, with the rise of AI, uh, we can now assemble Uh, technology solutions that are remarkable in the way that they provide a performance edge to uh, to companies. I understand you talked to many, many clients as you, Kate, and Rodney developed this new book, and that you also incorporated the results of 200 large-scale digital and AI transformations into your recommendations. What are some of the areas you've seen executives struggle in the most when they're trying to harness and really capture the full value or true potential of digital technology? I think the place they struggle the most with really is how to do this at scale. Most of them have gotten to a place where they've had a chance to taste what technology can do in their company. They've had a pilot, they had a successful experimentation, but it's not moving the needle on the company performance. And really, this is what Rewired gets at, which is how do you move from these early pilots, experimentation, where you've had some successes to actually scale this. And, and, and it goes, the problem goes beyond technology. Actually, it's almost not a technology problem. It's a, it's a problem about talent. It's a problem about how do I organize to actually deliver this at scale. It's a problem about data. And of course, there's technology in this, but... To some extent, that's almost the small end of the stick. The organizational component become where the big surgery is. Okay, interesting. So that sounds like many executives are starting with perhaps an incorrect premise, focusing on the 
I've got a technology problem or I've got an experimental pilot problem. But what you're saying is that technology is not really the problem, that executives maybe should instead ask, how can my organization deliver the potential of digital at scale? And what is the fundamental business problem that will solve? It definitely always starts with the business problem to solve. And frankly, when it starts that way, there's usually a good ending. The problem really ties back eventually to serving a customer better, to delivering more value for the company. And the business leaders are best positioned to actually put their finger on what that is. And so when the, when the business leaders step up and they say, that's the problem I want to solve with technology, then the technology components fall into place. And then it becomes easier to know what do I actually need to deliver on the technology roadmap needed uh, to solve those problems. So yes, the business problem is always the first, the first place to start. Got it. So that brings generative AI to mind. Are you seeing companies now almost inventing new problems to solve with Gen AI? Yes, it's definitely true that the conversations right now feel a little bit like a technology in search of a problem. Maybe that's natural because, frankly, when we all try Gen AI on, on ChatGPT, I mean, what, a, what an incredible experience that is. Uh, I know the, the technology is magical to some extent. And so I think that naturally takes your mind of, okay, where else could I be, uh, where else could I be applying this? I do think it's good to come back to the fundamentals, though, which is what really are the pain points in the company? And then search broadly for the set of technologies that will address it. And sometimes it's going to be Gen AI. But that doesn't mean Gen AI is the, the place to necessarily start. So I'll give you an example. If you're a consumer packaged goods company, and you can use Gen AI in many, many places, but in good old revenue growth management, RGM, that's all about advanced analytics on pricing, on demand, on promotions. And I don't think Gen AI is going to do a good job on that kind of problem. And that problem is worth a lot of money. That is a business problem that is always going to be among the top one to be solved for consumer packaged goods company. So if I were the leader of a packaged goods company, I might get interested in Gen AI, but I wouldn't miss the revenue management ship for sure. And that's going to be just AI in general. So yes, I agree with you. Gen AI tends to be a bit of a, uh, you know, a super technology and we're finding the right applications for it, but it should not take us away from what's the business problem to solve. Thanks, Eric. So in the book, you uh, also write about how you found that long-term success in digital transformations only come when executives make fundamental changes to their talent, their operating model, their technology, and their data capabilities. Let's focus on the first element in this, talent. In the 200 transformations that you analyzed, what were some of the approaches to talent that you found that really helped ensure successful digital transformations over the long term? I think it, it, the conversation usually starts like this. Uh, they will say, ah, oh, you know, the, all this AI stuff, that's wonderful, but we'll never have the talent to actually do this. Uh, but the reality is, is that, you know, traditional companies or established companies that are really serious about this, they manage to build the right talent. And I think it always starts with, are you committed 
to a technology environment that's going to be modern and that's going to make it uh, easy for talent to actually do their job. And so let me, here's what talent doesn't want. They don't want to be joining a company where they're going to know three years later that their skills will have atrophied because this company is working on an old technology stack, is working with old software engineering methods. So they want to know that three years from now, their skill is going to be just as good, if not better, than when they join the company. And that is easy to detect for tech talent. They'll ask questions like, okay, tell me about your technology architecture. They'll pick it up right away, whether you've been investing in it serious or not. Tell me about how you manage data. They'll pick that up right away. Tell me about your software engineering uh, method. And so these questions will be very early on in the conversation. And if it doesn't sound like the company is serious, they'll walk out because the, the thing that is of value to them right now is their craft. Uh, and so if that craft atrophies, they'll, they'll walk away. So if you're committed to that, they'll come in. Uh, and if you're not, you know, they'll walk out. Okay. So it sounds like it's really important to have a significant value proposition for your tech talent in terms of both your architecture and approach, especially if you're an incumbent. But in some cases, this might be really tough for an established company who's maybe been playing catch up on digital to try and offer this to outsiders. Have you, can you share any examples of successful scenarios where incumbent companies um, also helped build up their existing talent to manage new digital products or solutions? Yes. It's true that it goes beyond tech talent. Um, and, and maybe I, I do a little detour on product management. I think that is the, the king of jobs in, uh, in AI and digital. So what is it exactly? Product manager will envision the solution to be delivered. They will master the problem to be solved and they will master the roadmap on how to solve it and they'll be able to guide their team to that solution. That's really quite an important role. One, frankly, that we know well from the world of tech, but when companies decide to go down this journey, they have to build that muscle. And that muscle is hard to hire uh, because having the industry context and the context of the business and understanding the business problems to be solved that requires people that have been in the business. And, and so usually companies will upskill that skill. And that requires some training, and eventually they'll get to, uh, they'll get to the right place. But that, that skill in and of itself is not one of a technologist. It's one of a business person who understands enough about technology that they can reimagine how a problem can be solved with it. So can you give us an example of where you've seen a company implement a great technology but maybe not capture the full value immediately due to a seemingly unrelated, perhaps non-technology issue? Uh, we had developed incredible technology for an airline to be able to maximize the fill rate of its cargo space. So when you and I fly on an airline, there's an underbelly of the airline where they put the cargo. They put our suitcases there, of course, but they love to actually load it up for incremental cargo. The plane is going to fly anyway. Whatever I put in incremental cargo, I make money with. So it's a highly profitable business for an airline. But maximizing it is difficult because I don't know how many passengers are going to show up, uh, how many will have suitcases, how many extra space I have for cargo. So it's a beautiful problem for AI 
So we had developed incredible technology to say exactly how much extra cargo, what price for that cargo. And the technology was working, but we were checking the planes and they weren't flying with the cargo they were supposed to fly with. Why? And so we needed to actually chase this down to the airport and the palletizing procedures at the airport weren't quite right. And that is a lesson that I have learned and relearned over and over. Whenever you develop a piece of technology, there's going to be a secondary effect somewhere in the system that will prevent you from fully capturing the value. And in this particular instance, it was retraining operators at airport on how to do maximizing, you know, maximizing the, the, the caseload of the pallets. And, um, and that's not a technology problem. That's just a good old operational problem. And so technology usually unveils another bottleneck somewhere else in the end-to-end process that also needs to be solved to realize the value. And there lies the importance of having the business really owning that end-to-end reimagination of the process because once they will have deployed the nice piece of technology somewhere, somebody else will need to chase these other bottlenecks down the, uh, down the chain. And that's where the business leaders need to play a key role. There was a quote in the book that I really liked, you can't outsource your way to success. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, the development of the technology itself is something that we find much more productive if people actually have their own capabilities in-house to develop the technology. Why do I say that? If you're a data engineer or a software engineer or an AI machine learning engineer and you're working on a business problem, your ability to actually develop the right technology goes two times, three times, four times faster if you actually understand the context of that problem. If you outsource that work all the time, the people to whom you're outsourcing to, they don't have that context. Context is not built overnight. Okay, it takes months before somebody actually understands the, the business and the problem that they're swimming in. Uh, and so when you actually have those technologists inside your enterprise, they understand that context for the problem now and they'll understand for the next incremental innovation on that problem and the next one and the next one and then your whole innovation wheel starts to fly a lot faster. Got it. So if the answer is not outsourcing technology work to third parties, then what role should third parties play in building an organization's technological muscle and and getting that flywheel that you were just talking about spinning faster? That's an excellent question that I face all the time. And actually, my answer is very straight to clients. They should not be dependent on consultants for a long period of time. They should actually build that capability. Now, at first, that flywheel is not so straightforward to start. How do you actually build a bench of technologists? How do you show them how to work in the right way? How do you bring business in the, in the dance? So there's a clear acceleration that a third party who knows what they're doing can bring to this. But it's not a place where you want to be outsourcing that capability for a long period of time. You need to be building that bench. So when we work with clients, we are very clear on this. We're going to help you build the capabilities, the bench, the new ways of working. But eventually, you need to own it if you want that to really become a competitive differentiation. You can't outsource your way to competitive differentiation, and you can't... um, uh, out-consultant your way to competitive differentiation, I, either if I can use that word. 
You certainly can, Eric. Thank you. What's your perspective on the importance of the organization's mindset? Does it help for business leaders and established or incumbent companies try to shift their organization's mindset to try and think of themselves as digital first or tech companies? Some companies really embrace that. Um, in the book, you'll read about uh, a case of a DBS Bank. And uh, it's clear when you read the case that they really saw themselves as becoming a technology company when they went down this path. But not every company likes that analogy, actually. They feel their core business is not technology. It is whatever it is. It can be mining. Uh, it can be consumer packaged goods. And, and technology is a, is a complement, but technology is not the core. Uh, and so there's a bit of that tension. But here's where I think all companies need to be thinking about. If technology is going to play a role in driving competitive differentiation, what does that mean? Better serve customer, lower unit costs. If technology is going to play an important role, they will have no choice but to become good at software development. Just like no company would ever debate whether they need to be good at finance. If you're going to run a company, you have to be good at finance. Well, today, if you're going to be good at running a company with technology infused in it, you're going to be good at software development. And so that's a new muscle to be built. So it sounds like maybe a way to resolve this tension is for business to think about digital technology as being infused throughout their entire organization rather than just a separate department like HR or finance. Is that right? Yes. It's a central theme of the book, Rewired, to get to a state that I would call distributed digital innovation. What does that mean? When you start on the journey, you will start maybe with a handful of teams. Let's call it five teams that are developing technology solutions, and that's great. They'll develop an app. They'll develop a model. It will work. It will show some value. And that'll be great. But the rest of the mothership, the, the company itself, won't be transformed. When you reach a rewired state, that number from five teams maybe will have moved to 500. It'll be 100x more. And these teams will actually be working in different parts of the company. They'll work in sales. They'll work in supply chain. They'll work in manufacturing. They'll work in R&D. They'll work in distribution. They'll work in finance. They'll work in HR. And they're going to work at the service of the leaders of these different areas to develop technology solutions to solve the problems that these different areas have. And the people who will guide the work of these teams will be the leaders of these different areas. And at that point... No one is calling IT anymore to develop a piece of solution to solve their problem because they have that capability now in each one of their areas. And so the evolution of IT becomes one of distributed IT, distributed technology capabilities. And when you reach that state, day in, day out, these business leaders are able to make small incremental improvements to the customer experience to the unit cost position, and that's how outperformance eventually comes out of all this. So in this, in this ideal world, what role does the new IT team and the CIO take on in such a rewired organization? Well, so there was a uh, provocative article in the Wall Street Journal, might have been a year ago, and 
It was provocative in the way that it was written, but I loved it because it was really this notion that the technology capabilities that are in IT are now going to be distributed across the innovation to empower, to enable business leaders to actually do their own innovation. And IT was then going to become really that, that bedrock that is enabling cybersecurity, enabling easy distribution of the tools and data needed for that innovation to happen. It remains important as a platform capability, but no longer the sole engine of, of innovation. That belongs in the hands of the enterprise more broadly. And I think this is where we're going. Okay. So let's take this just one step further. How should the entire top team, including the CIO and the CFO, think about their roles in this new environment? So that's a conversation that takes some time at the executive team because to make that transition, everybody's got a role to play around the CEO. Of course, we've just spoken about the, the CIO and I think his or her role is transformative because they now need to be moving to a model where they're enabling the rest of the organization to innovate securely with access to all the tools and data that they need and frankly providing them with the development capacity that used to reside in IT. That flip in and of itself for the CIO is a major transformation of the IT function. So that's the CIO. And let's move to HR. The talent equation of all of this is, uh, is massive. Now I need, I need to recruit from the outside. I need to upskill uh, people that are in product management. I'm not dealing with units of, of tens here. I'm dealing in units of hundreds of thou or thousands uh, in a large institution, a large bank. It'll be tens of thousands of people that need to go through that HR transition. The job of the head of HR is massive. And by the way, that head of HR also needs to figure out how do I assess a data engineer now on the basis of skills, because skills becomes the currency, not how many people do I manage to get promotion, but what skill sets am I looking for to decide that somebody is a distinguished data engineer versus a novice data engineer. And so the transformation in HR is substantial. Let's go to finance. How do I fund all of this? Because in the old days, you have a big IT project, we debate it, we build a business case, and then we say go, and then we fund millions of that IT projects, and we mobilize a big team, we go for two years. Usually there's some things that happen that's not so good. Uh, the project goes off the rail, and so that's IT in the old days. IT in the new days gets funded differently. All of these little teams, I can't have IT fund you know, projects by project, 500 different teams that's going to collapse. And so the way IT changes is it moves to something called persistent funding. I'm no longer funding projects. I'm funding portfolios of these small teams that are working on solving a problem. And I continue my funding until the problem is actually no longer productive to be solved because the incremental time that I spend on it is no longer having a reward. Persistent funding versus project funding is a massive shift in finance. So the CFO has to be ready to go there. Let's take another one and then I'll stop. Um, let's take the people who had control functions, risk management, compliance, regulatory. How does their job change? Because now I've got 500 of these little teams that are innovating. 
surely we must be underwriting new risk when we do that. So how do, who's controlling these 500 teams? And so the role of the control functions now need to come upstream. They need to start early on before there's an even a, a start of a development effort to say, are there any risks here that are being undertaken by these teams that we should be carefully monitoring? And so usually the control functions come in early. They say, ah, this team is going to work on customer data. There's a risk of data privacy issues. Okay, I'm going to ask that team to work as part of their development effort to also work on addressing data privacy risk. I do that upfront so that I don't need six months from now to tell that team, well, you know what, you didn't handle data privacy, so all the work that you did for six months is basically we're not, we're not going to use it. And so control functions see their job moving upstream to actually guide uh, the development of these teams so that they actually address the risk upfront. And then there's a, essentially a process to, um, you know, to monitor that that risk has actually been addressed. So the role of the control functions also change. Long story short, everybody in the C-suite has a new job when you move to a distributed innovation model. Everybody's got to drive a transformation of their area so that the entire system works. If everything I've just done was to work and the control functions don't, don't, don't do their part, it fails. Finance doesn't do their part, it fails. HR doesn't do their part, it fails. And so it becomes a, what I call in the book, the ultimate corporate sport. Everybody's got to play. So, so one of the fears of many executives is the, the, just the vast complexity of IT. If you start tugging on one wire, 14 other things fall, might fall apart. So what would you say to executives who are concerned that by infusing complex interdependent tech initiatives across their departments that you know they're going to be worried that they're going to end up with a tangle of crossed wires right it's just going to be too risky too tough to manage i think that's a really good question because that's almost the number one reason why we wrote this book the whole field of technology has gotten really complex to understand a couple of examples gen ai Oh, fantastic. Does that mean the old AI is dead and now I just focus on Gen AI? By the way, I keep hearing about data engineers. What do they do? And data architecture. I don't understand any of that. How does that work? And I've been hearing about Agile for 10 years. Is that still relevant? And what do I use it for? I could go on and on. And the lack of understanding or common understanding of what that means around the executive table makes it very difficult to make progress because it's become the world of buzzwords. And so to some extent, we try to write this book to decomplexify the whole space and focus on what really matters for an executive to start to get value from technology for their company. Typically, when they start the journey, I like to counsel executives on go slow to go fast. So what does that mean? Take your team on a learning journey together. Invest 10 hours, 15 hours to learn and establish a common language. Clarify all the questions that I mentioned earlier and others. Common base of understanding of technology. And second, visit companies that are further ahead. Get inspired on how the business leaders at these other companies 
have been able to transform uh, with, uh, with technology and build your own self-confidence that you're going to be able to do that too. Uh, and frankly, after that investment, and it's not such a big investment, to be honest, uh, the confidence gets there, alignment gets there, and the top team can start to play its role in leading uh, the technology transformation in their, uh, in their enterprise. So that's essentially uh, you know, how the journey usually starts, and it starts with decomplexifying what has become buzzword-rich uh, environment for sure. And I'm hoping, frankly, my, my small hope with Rewired is that this will serve that purpose with, uh, with many more executives. Indeed. And for those of you who are interested in making the most of this journey and leading the technology transformation in your business, we'll include a link to Rewired in the show notes. Eric, thanks so much again for joining us today. Sean, terrific. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for the session today. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at ITSR at McKinsey.com. That stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to everyone who's already done so. We really appreciate all your comments and your feedback. Please do keep them coming. If you enjoyed today's episode and you'd like to subscribe, you can follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player. And that's where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. And there you can easily search our prior podcasts and they're organized across six major themes. And that is where you'll also find written transcripts of those sessions. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, you can sign up on our Practice Insights page at mckinsey.com slash SCF for strategy and corporate finance. You can follow us on Twitter or X at MCK strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey strategy and corporate finance practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the strategy room.